it's never fun trying to go through and, and figure out what's going on through all your collections, your expenses. But really, at the end of the day, we're doing this to make money. And if you don't have your finances figured out, then there's really no point in doing this. Best ever listeners, you ready to take your online advertising into the big leagues? Are you ready to get more leads? Well, how about we do all this for free? Yeah, sure, free. Well, it starts out with a free strategy session with Dan Barrett. You recognize his name, episode 565, titled Google AdWords and Cutting Edge Strategies. He's the only certified Google partner agency that works exclusively with real estate investors. That's why I'm talking about him. And he's managed over a million dollars of client spend and scored an 80th percentile for or higher for best practice. Basically, he knows his stuff. And he is offering a free strategy session for one hour to do a deep dive with you and learn about your market and collaboratively come up with an online advertising strategy based on your target audience. And he's offering to do this for the best ever listeners. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Now I mentioned free. Well, the strategy session is free. And then you can either take the online advertising strategy that he comes up with on the call and go implement it yourself. There you go. It's free. Or you can have him and his agency do it for you. It's a turnkey solution. And by the way, that likely one that being free too, assuming that you're closing on the leads that he's generating for you as a result of all the efforts. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. He's got some amazing stuff. Ask him about the pre-targeting for direct mail lists that he does. It's something unique to their company and it's pretty exciting stuff. He's noticing some tremendous results as a result of doing pre-targeting. So ask him about that. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluff with us today, Matt Wood and Mike O'Connor. How are you two doing? Good, Joe. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm doing well. Nice to have you both on the show. And a little bit about Matt and Mike. They are multifamily investors who have a portfolio of 140 plus units. And they've acquired that in a few years. Purchased a 100-unit building for $2.8 million with no money out of pocket. And began investing in real estate in their mid-20s while working their full-time jobs. They're based in Atlanta, Georgia. With that being said, you two want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, absolutely. You hit on some of the key points there. Um, Matt and I have known each other since college, and we actually happened to join the same consulting firm out of college where we both realized we had a similar interest in real estate. And about December 2013, after doing a lot of analysis and talking about the real estate market, we co-bought a small $65,000 house and a sub-market called Stone Mountain here in Atlanta, Georgia. And that really was the beginning of the whole snowball, if you will. We sat on that for about a year when we decided that we actually wanted to do a little bit of an uptrade, if you will. And we can dive into some of these more specifics later. But what that essentially led to was us purchasing our first multifamily deal, which was 32 units. As you alluded to, we then jumped to a 100-unit deal, and then our 16-unit deal. And now we've got a couple quads, a sixplex, a duplex under contract. So that's kind of the very high-level background on us and what we've done. And I'm sure you'll have some questions about some specifics. Sure do. Yeah. What money did you use to buy the $65,000 house? Your own money? 
Yeah, we used our own money for that one. And we just did a standard 30-year mortgage on that property. So I think we still had to put 25% down, but for a $65,000 house, that was reasonable with our day jobs and with our savings. And we used our own money on the first multifamily property as well, the 32-unit complex. We got 80% financing from a bank for that property. But after that 32-unit, we were a little bit tapped out. And that's why we had to get creative with the 100 unit and do some seller financing, pull in some investors. We flipped the house kind of during that process to pay back some money for the investors and things like that. So in order to scale and really grow, we learned pretty quickly that we were going to have to find ways to leverage other people's money. And that's going to be a fun thing to talk about. You just mentioned you flipped the house to pay back investors. Can you elaborate? When we bought the 100-unit complex, we seller financed 10%, the bank provided 80%, and then investors provided the remaining 10% of the purchase price, but we're giving them a preferred return, and we're paying them that 10% back over a five-year period. And so we have investor payments to make on a semi-annual basis, and our goal really has continued to be to have no money out of pocket on that 100-unit complex. And so we're both real estate agents. We work with a lot of investors and we found a property that had potential to flip. It had a good after repair value, had good comps in the area and we flipped it and made some profit and used that to pay the investors back. And kind of to what Matt was saying, the way we structured it is if we knew what we knew now, we would have been a little more selfish, if you will, with the equity piece, but we gave up 50% of the equity to the investors for the money that they brought, but we also pay them back 5% on an annual basis. So that money comes out to something in the ballpark of $35,000 around July 1st every year. So at least once a year, flipping isn't necessarily our main objective, but we found a flip where we were able to make a quick $30,000. We turned it around, pumped it right back into our investors, and we continued this whole theme of letting the business fund itself with no money directly out of our pockets. Interesting. So you're using an outside investment to pay a preferred return for an investment that the investors invest in. That's exactly right. And they're fine with that? Yeah, they're absolutely okay with that. The properties themselves are cash flowing as well. The main objective for the whole process was for us to do a full cash out refinance, hopefully within the next year, once we have stronger numbers with that cash out, kind of pay back both the seller financing and the remaining debt service that we have due to our investors. And hopefully that will bring us even keeled. But they're okay with that as long as the money's coming back to them, they're getting their interest and the properties run smoothly, they give us the autonomy we need. Huh. With the 5% preferred return, because it's basically a preferred return, when you did the underwriting, did you project that the property would be able to pay the 5% preferred return? It's interesting. When we bought this property, we knew that it had some immediate upside. All the units were submetered for water, but the owners were paying for water. So we immediately charged that back to the tenant, made some upgrades in some units and have slowly worked on increasing rents. So there is an element of the property paying back investors over time. But as of now, since we're only two years in on this property, we knew that we would be making those investor payments either out of pocket or with other returns from our other properties or from flips. I mean, we could make the payments out of pocket if we wanted to, but our mindset and our goal has really been to try to Mike's point to make those payments and to do everything with business returns. Yeah, and then the big thing that we're marching towards that we underwrote during the analysis was the seller financing portion. So we have a balloon on that after five years for the pure principal amount. We pay monthly interest payments only for five years on that. And that is one that we're confident that will absolutely be paid back through the property itself. But the property, we're also hoping through this cash out, will handle the remaining investor payments that we have for the next two years. 
when you had the investor conversations, when you're talking to them about the deal, you mentioned that the 5% will be paid from outside investments in the property instead of the actual property for the first couple of years and that conversation was okay? I think we would have had to have a different conversation if we were going to tell the investors that we're going to pay them back using money from the property since they also are equity owners, right? So it was cleaner even to show that we're building up reserves in the property and we're leaving that money there in the property's account and then we're paying them money back from our own pockets or our, to my point, they don't care where the money comes from as long as they get paid back. Right. And it's nicer to have the reserve build up there and they know that that's all kind of shared money for the property. It keeps it cleaner. Huh. You seem surprised by that. I've never that. heard of this. I've never, I've never heard of paying from another property the preferred return. Usually my deals and every deal I've heard of, which as long as it's kosher, and there's no commingling of funds or anything, then I assume it's fine. Not at all. I mean, just to simplify it totally, we owe them money, right, to pay them back on the investment. And the way that we structure the promissory note, the money comes in however it comes in. Huh. Okay. And when you do a refinance or when you sell, are you then repaid that 5% that you've been paying them from outside sources? No. So 5% is basically what we're giving them as kind of a thank you for you fronting the money or as kind of a to account for that. The guys that we brought in are higher net worth individuals who have very diversified investment portfolios. So there's a certain element of desirability in a 5% return. For me, 5% return is not as appealing. I like to look for something higher. But for these guys, the fact that they could get both equity and 5% on this money made sense. So as far as that 5%, we won't be taking that back out. That's just going straight to the investors. Hmm. How'd you two find the deal? The same guy who brought us the 32-unit deal actually stumbled across this. There's a couple of brothers down in the sub-market that we're in. It's Albany, Georgia, who picked this property up a few years back for real cheap. And they're actually builders. So they were looking for some capital to go into a few new building projects. The guy's name is Eric. He brought it over to our group and said, hey, you know, I've come across a deal. It's 100 units for $2.8 million. A, are you guys interested in getting in on this? And B, do you know how we'd be able to figure out the financing component? So aside from Matt, we have two other kind of day-to-day partners, Aziz Khan and Kieran Artham that we work hand-in-hand with. And we really started underwriting the deal, seeing if it made sense, looking at the numbers, looking for potential areas for value add, and it made sense. So once we identified it to closing it, it really was a quick time frame. It was probably about a month and a half that it took, but it was Eric. We'll give him credit for that. Just his kind of wide network of investors and owners throughout the Atlanta and surrounding areas. That was my follow-up question. Perfect segue. How many investors do you have in the 100-unit deal, and what's the total equity that they brought? The investor group, I think they're like a five-person group. Kind of break down the numbers. 80% of the loan came from the bank, 10% of the loan is seller financed, and then 10% of the loan came from the investors themselves. Now, again, knowing what we know now, we probably would have diluted ourselves less just because of we're operating the property on a day-to-day basis. It's a good deal. We really were giving them a good opportunity. When it all shakes out, the investors get 50%, and then we on our end get 50% which comes down to 10% each, which, again, in the grand scheme of things, isn't a ton. But the fact that we're each getting 10 units for an apartment complex for absolutely no money out of pocket, 
essentially could look at opportunity costs, what we're doing with our flips, could that money have gone to better use elsewhere, et cetera. But if, as long as we're getting in there, getting those 10 units for no cost out of our own pocket, if you will, we're satisfied with that. So there is some dilution there, but it's the way that it made sense at the time. What have you done differently on the 100 unit that you didn't do on the 32 unit? Good question. So the deals were totally different. Um, the 32 unit required some rehab up front. It required a lot more stabilization because about 12 of the units were vacant when we purchased the property and we were able to get it leased up pretty quickly. The 100 unit was about 80% leased when we bought it, but we went in and immediately made some upgrades on the flooring of the units or HVAC or things like that just to improve the quality of the property. And then we had some additional decisions to make as far as the property management aspect because the 100 unit complex has a full-time leasing agent and a full-time maintenance technician at the property. So that was a little bit of a different beast than the 32 unit in terms of the operations. What's a lesson learned or a mistake that you made on the 32 unit that you didn't make on the 100 unit? The 32 unit was a great first deal in the sense that the numbers were great. From day one, it really was a strong deal. And that's really what catapulted us into quickly you know, over the next six months, closing on another 116 units. A big takeaway that I always harp on is the quality of the tenant. So when you've got a lot of vacancy or you're working on stabilizing a property, there's this element of wanting to increase the cash flow as quickly as possible. So you start to loosen your restrictions or your requirements for the tenants that you're placing. So we were doing, I want to say, two and a half times income. Your income has to be two and a half times the current rent price. And we brought those best practices, or not best practices, over to the 100 unit. But then we started to realize that this is leading to more evictions. It's leading to a lower class of tenant. So we quickly cut that off when we bought the 100 unit deal and really just realized we'd rather wait an extra two or three weeks and place a good quality tenant than to jump the gun and put in a lower quality tenant off the bat. And I think that saved us a lot of money across the road with leasing fees, paying someone to go and show the unit, turn costs, eviction costs, costs of non-payment, things like that. On the 100 unit, what's been the most challenging aspect of doing the asset management? Good question. There are a couple of aspects to that. We actually recently transitioned property management companies after just realizing for a number of different reasons that the original company that we were working with wasn't a good fit. The current company we have has been great. I would say one of the challenges, though, is that the property is about three hours outside of Atlanta, and so we don't get to that property in person as often. We rely on our on-site leasing agent to be the eyes and ears on the ground, but I think there are some elements that we would have been able to manage quicker and more easily if the property were in our backyard. We're still happy with the deal and ultimately we would invest the same distance away from Atlanta if the numbers made sense, but that has been a challenge. That's an interesting question. I'm going to kind of break that out a bit as well. A benefit of having 100 units is you do have the need for an on-site manager and on-site maintenance tech, and I think that's been great. Just kind of shifting that question a bit and looking at the 32 unit or then a 16 unit one, the hardest thing about those especially at 32 units, getting to the point where you need some type of on-site presence, maybe not full-time, but part-time, and figuring out how that model looks, how you pay someone to be there, what they're doing while they're there, is kind of challenging. It's that awkward in-between phase where it's not a single-family home where it obviously doesn't require on-site staff, and it's not 100 units where you definitely need someone. It's definitely an in-between. We've gone back and forth on models with that, and that's been a big challenge. How did you find the original property management company and what were the red flags that made you 
ditch them and pick someone else? The 32-unit complex was being managed by that property management company. And since we were scaling from a single-family house to the 32-unit complex, we wanted to try to keep everything as consistent as possible. There was already a lot of change going on in our investing lives, and so it made sense to keep them. And they're nice people. I mean, they still do good work. It just wasn't a fit for us. We, at the time, some of the lessons learned that we have on our end is that we're all four guys with day jobs who are very type A and we like to know all the details and we micromanage them. Granted, you still have to manage the management company, but we probably went overboard on that, but it just wasn't a personality fit in some ways. And so the current company that we have also invests and has their own properties and understands a lot more of the elements that we're looking for and we like the personnel and it's been a great fit. As far as the personality, I mean, I imagine the operations or the numbers were suffering because if that wasn't the case, then I suspect, but maybe I'm wrong, that you wouldn't have made the change. So from an operation standpoint, what specifically does a new property management company do that perhaps the other one was not as efficient or effective at? They've got a lot better oversight on the property. So the two models are very different. The new company and this alludes to my earlier point about on-site versus off-site, is much more remote. So we've got more senior-level people overlooking our property operations, but from a remote perspective, handling the financials, really looking through work orders, making sure that they're valid work orders, running the accounting, vetting tenants. The previous company was very big on on on-site presence. So we had an on-site manager that we were paying an hourly wage to that was working on a couple of our properties for about three days a week. This individual, for kind of lack of better terms, was not a more senior person, so a bit more junior, green behind the ears, and they were essentially in charge of running the property, handling the accounting, handling the finances, the tenant placement, and so the decisions that they were making just weren't great. You know, we were placing bad tenants. Rent collection was low, uh, lower, I should say. Things slipped through the cracks. Every work order that came through the door got fixed, and it came out of our pocket, so There were just a variety of different ways where we weren't either capitalizing on opportunities or we were bleeding from an expense perspective. And that was one of the big drivers of the actual change. Now, things are much more tightened up. We have less oversight and overhead as far as on-site presence. And the properties are performing much, much better than they were before. Another thing that I'd add briefly is that we could tell pretty quickly with the new property management company that they took things up a level in terms of their accounting, their reporting, their software portals. So you could tell pretty quickly that it was a professionally run operation. And we had some qualifications, like some references on the new company. And that's a lesson learned is that we would ask any new property management company for client references that we could speak to to learn a little bit more about them. Lots of good lessons learned. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? You know, Matt and I would probably go different ways on this, but I would say don't hesitate to jump in. You need to understand your markets. You need to understand the numbers and what you're doing. But you could sit there and you could analyze deals. And this is more for a newer investor, right? You can sit there and analyze deals absolutely all day. There's plenty of deals to run numbers on. Actually taking the leap and getting in the game is absolutely critically important. I think the other thing for someone that's obviously more experienced, really understand and manage your finances and your accounting very well especially pertinent now that we're in tax season. It's never fun trying to go through and and figure out what's going on through all your collections, your expenses. But really, at the end of the day, we're doing this to make money. And if you don't have your finances figured out, then there's really no point in doing this. You two ready for the best ever lightning round? Ready. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Got your free strategy session to generate online leads yet? 
Well, if not, go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Dan Barrett's going to give you a concrete online advertising strategy by the end of the conversation. You can choose to implement it yourself or you can work with this team and they'll implement it for you. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Ready to enter the minds of successful entrepreneurs and millionaires? Are you ready to excel in your entrepreneurial and investing journey? The new podcast, Before the Millions, studies phenomenal entrepreneurs and their path to millions. Journey through exclusive interviews, giving you all the secrets to mimic their successes. Listen and subscribe to Before the Millions podcast at BeforeTheMillions.com. That's BeforeTheMillions.com. Best ever book you've read? Best ever book I've read is the Robert Kiyosaki book, and I'm drawing a blank on Rich the name. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yeah, that was, you know, a lot of people give that book, but it honestly got me into real estate investing. Best ever deal you two have done? Probably our 32-unit deal. We picked it up for 640000 It just got appraised for $1.35 million, and it brings in roughly 18000 a month. Best ever way you like to give back? We're pretty involved in our church and like to get involved with the service aspects there. We do different like habitat type builds and stuff like that. So just getting your hands dirty and getting involved. And thinking back on your deals, what's a mistake on a deal that comes to mind? Mistake on a deal. I would say on our 16-unit deal, which we didn't do much discussing here, we basically rehabbed all 16 units. Some of them were floor-to-ceiling molds. A good majority of them were. We... I don't want to say we cut corners, but we rushed the job in some areas, both with our repairs and with our tenant placement, to get the thing up and running quicker than we needed to. And I would say that that probably cost us about six months of being at full stabilization just because tenants were having to be evicted, repairs that we made weren't holding up. So really going back and actually doing that right the first time would have saved us a lot of time and a lot of money. You read my mind when you said we haven't talked about it a whole lot. I do want to touch on it briefly real quick. With that 16 units, what are the numbers? We actually found that one on the FMLS, which is interesting. Aziz found that Yeah, one. Aziz found that. That one, we picked it up for 471 We probably put in about $100,000, so we're all in. Our base is about 570 I did just get appraised for $1.05, so millions. All the work that we did really paid off. But that's 16 units. It's eight duplexes, and each one rents out for about 850 a month. And one other thing we like about that property is that the whole area itself is really improving, and we're getting tenants like teachers and nurses, and just a it's been a good quality kind of group that we're getting in. And as far as that property goes, did you do a refinance and return your original equity? We cashed out $100,000 of it, not all of it, but a portion of it. Correct. How did you decide how much to cash out? Especially with interest rates being so low, leverage is great. It's allowed us to scale the way that we have, but we're cautious too. We're, we're very conservative in our investments. So we thought $100,000 was a good amount to kind of pay ourselves back, but at the same time not keeping the leverage too far. Because again, we'd love to pay these things off on them outright. And then our view is let's get lines of credit against the property so we have our assets working for us, but we only pull it out if we need to. That's a good mm-hmm. question. That wasn't an arbitrary number. We did spend a lot of time talking about, you know, should we take any money back? Should we take more than 100 Because we did have the equity to make that decision. But we do ultimately want to have these properties paid down for better passive income. So it was certainly a discussion. The line of credit that you took, that's in addition to the 100 k you got back out, right? 
Correct. So we've got a two hundred thousand dollar line of credit that we have, and we pulled out a hundred thousand. So the two hundred thousand is against the thirty-two units. The hundred thousand is against the sixteen units. What's the interest rate on the line of credit? It has a floor of four percent, and then it's prime plus two percent. So right now it's probably in the six range, if I'm not mistaken. So better than getting hard money for something. Honestly, we started out wanting it for just reserves and to have that kind of money available. But we're looking at some deals potentially where we could leverage some of that money. It's a good interest rate, something that we could kind of get into and get out of quickly. And where did you get that line of credit from? Wells Fargo. Yeah, Wells Fargo actually has a good program that we were able to get into for the refinance. It's a 15-year term and 15-year amortization on the loan on the property and then a separate line of credit because we have good equity in the property. Where can the best ever listeners get in touch with you too? If you go to Foundations Realty, our website, we'll have those in the show notes as well. You can find us on sites like Bigger Pockets, LinkedIn, and places like that. Awesome. Well, this was a fun conversation because I love hearing how your company has progressed and evolved from the $65,000 house to the 100 unit and the full rehab and how you structure it with investors, the lessons learned along the way. And I love how you two got into the specifics of everything. So thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Thank you. Ready to enter the minds of successful entrepreneurs and millionaires? Are you ready to excel in your entrepreneurial and investing journey? The new podcast, Before the Millions, studies phenomenal entrepreneurs and their path to millions. Journey through exclusive interviews, giving you all the secrets to mimic their successes. Listen and subscribe to Before the Millions podcast at beforethemillions.com. That's beforethemillions.com.